Welcome to KYH2O, a podcast about all things water in Kentucky. I'm Carmen Agaritas, an Extension Associate Professor in the Biosystems and Agricultural Engineering Department at the University of Kentucky. And I'm Amanda Gumbert, an Extension Specialist for Water Quality with the University of Kentucky Cooperative Extension Service. Join us as we get our feet wet exploring Kentucky's water resources. Amanda, recently you were up in Washington, D.C. for the Hypoxia Task Force meeting. What is Hypoxia Task Force? Oh, well, good question. Let's start out with hypoxia because that's kind of a, a big word we don't use every day. And hypoxia is um, basically when we have a lack of oxygen in water. And in this case, it's in the Gulf of Mexico and it's a result of pollution. And in that sense, it really is um, kind of when I tell um, or describe Gulf hypoxia to people and why we should worry about it in Kentucky. Um, you know, I think about and, and try to visualize the, the, you know, a map of the United States and kind of that central portion of the map of the United States, the lower 48 at least, about 40 percent of that central plains, the breadbasket all along the Mississippi River Basin all of that drains into the Gulf of Mexico. And when we get too many nutrients, meaning too much nitrogen and phosphorus specifically, um, in the Mississippi River, then um, it, those nutrients kind of act like caffeine and sugar that, you know, if you give that to your kids, you know what happens to them and they kind of go wild and crazy and then they crash. Um, the same thing happens with aquatic plants or algaes. And um, so the, those nutrients get into the water and then we have this basically a big algae bloom. And then as those algaes and aquatic plants start to decompose, then the oxygen is essentially sucked out of the water column and nothing can live there. No fish, you know, no shellfish. And so we call that the dead zone maybe commonly heard of, um, in the media, probably calls it dead zone, um, but also we call it the hypoxic zone. So you mentioned, you mentioned nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus. Where are those coming from to get into the water to even get down to the Gulf? Um, lots of places. So thinking about that 40-ish percent of the land that drains into the Mississippi River, you know, we, we have some colleagues that say if it's on the ground, it's in your water. And that's a pretty good analogy or a pretty good statement in that any kind of nutrient, it could be from agriculture, it could be from urban areas, so the fertilizer we put on our lawns, um, it can be nutrients in animal waste, including our pets. So if we don't pick up after our dog when we go for a walk, there's nutrients in there. Um, it could be industrial sources. It could be even um, wastewater treatment plants. You know, after we flush, the water goes to a treatment plant. Those treatment plants try to get those nutrients out of the water before they release them into the creek. Um, and so those nutrients come from all of the land uses that we have in the basin. So we could have a lot of small contributors, but cumulatively it's becoming a really big problem. Yeah, absolutely. And so back to the question about the task force, um, the Environmental Protection Agency at the federal level established a task force in 1997. Um, and they were, their mission was to try to figure out why we had this dead zone in the Gulf and what we could do about it, essentially. Um, and so they have been meeting, you know, on a, a semi-annual basis, I believe, since then, and involving researchers and involving federal and state agencies to try to work toward reducing nutrients going into the water. 
And you talked with Mike Smith up at uh, Washington, D.C., and he's from a state I didn't really necessarily think about being associated with the Gulf of Mexico, and that's Minnesota. Right. So we did talk to Mike, and um, Mike's going to, he describes for you a new partnership that the Hypoxia Task Force is involved in. So let's hear from him and and really kind of think about a new state that you wouldn't think of with the Gulf. We, we are in Washington, D.C. at the Hypoxia Task Force uh, uh, public meeting session where uh, it's just kind of great that uh, people from various organizations, agencies, and just the public can come and listen in on uh, hearing what our federal agencies are doing to um, address the hypoxia issue down in the Gulf of Mexico. And what I always find interesting is that although the ultimate impact is that is in the Gulf of Mexico, you know, the, the, the issues permeate northward through 12 states up to the north central region and it starts up in Minnesota where, where I'm located. And as much as farmers, producers, ag professionals in Minnesota don't really understand hypoxia or the, even the Gulf of Mexico, I think that what's, what's really kind of keen about this, this whole project is that Minnesotans care about water quality. We're the land of 10,000 lakes and our citizens really take that seriously. I have a couple of colleagues from Minnesota on the, the, the task force and, and working with our Sarah 46 group, and it's just part of who they are. It's part of their culture because everybody has a lake that they kind of claim as their own or a lake that they go to regularly, that they recreate with. And I think in Kentucky, it's sometimes, at least for us in our busy lives, it's it's easy to get disconnected. We've talked about that on other episodes mm-hmm. of that disconnection from our local waterway and, and what the impact is downstream. And it's good for us, I think, to think about how others in the United States may be separated from us, how they look at what their water resources. Along with the public session, you know, with the Hypoxia Task Force, there's also additional meetings that are taking place that uh, we've had the opportunity to talk a little bit about Um, a complimentary uh, group that uh, the Hypoxia Task Force invited to to join them and that's the CIRA 46 committee and um, you know CIRA 46 is um, you know the Southern Extension and Research Activities Committee we're number 46 committee and uh, we're a group of uh, 12 land-grant institutions that um, were invited to help Um, address some of these issues that the Hypoxia Task Force, which is our federal agencies, um, are addressing. They wanted the land grants to be part of their uh, projects. They saw value in the land grant universities. And quite frankly, it makes sense that the land grant universities are part of this because, you know, through the, you know, the Morrill Act, the Hatch Act, the Smith-Lever Act, we are involved in water quality agricultural issues um, you know in our states and throughout the country and uh, because land-grant universities are based on federal funds from those three uh, acts of Congress 
we have a joint um, national presence. So Mike just finished up talking about our Sarah 46 committee, um, and that's a group that I've been working with the last couple of years. And he also describes some of the um, some of the acts that dictate how universities work. So Carmen, you are a faculty member, a researcher, an extension person. Can you describe those for us so our listeners can maybe understand this crazy language we speak? Sure. So briefly, um, the Morrell Act was established largely so that each state would have some sort of land-grant institution in which we could um, serve the people of the state. The Hatch Act um, set aside funds for us to have agricultural experiment stations. So you may see um, different experiment stations associated with the University of Kentucky. Those are, are uh, related to their Hatch Act. And the Smith Lever was set up for our Cooperative Extension Service, which hopefully many people across our state are actually benefiting from directly when they have uh, county agents and so forth um, help them out with different issues that they have. Amanda, you've described the Hypoxia Task Force. What is the ultimate goal? What, are you, what is that group trying to achieve? So what the task force is looking at is they have set some targets, uh, some goals for reducing the size of the dead zone. And the ultimate goal is that the size of the dead zone be 5,000 square kilometers by 2035. And that's essentially on a five-year running average um, because we know that annual fluctuations can cause really fluctuations in terms of rainfall especially but um, they can cause some some pretty significant swings in the size of the dead zone so they use the five-year running average as kind of a standard metric um, to measure the dead zone um, by comparison so 5,000 square kilometers is the goal by comparison, in 2017, when the dead zone was measured, it was 22,000 square kilometers. Yeah. So we've got a ways to go to get to that goal. So when you mentioned that rainfall was a big factor, that's because more nutrients can then run off and then go into the dead zone and then be consumed by plants who eventually de die, decompose, and bacteria then... Right, absolutely. And also, they, um, some of the, the modelers who are trying to, to really track what the patterns are, you know, are looking at spring rains. So essentially, May precipitation is kind of their... Um, their snippet of information they're looking at, and they're a pretty good predictor of what the dead zone looks like. And because just that, if we have precipitation, then we lose more nutrients off the landscape, either on the surface or even through tile-drained areas. So a lot of our Midwest agriculture, row crop agriculture, is tile-drained. And so we, we lose nutrients directly through those tile drains. Um, and so the having some sense of, of really what's going on and what is impacting these, um, the size of the dead zone is part of what the task force is looking at. The other thing they are doing is they have established two different work groups, one looking at non-point source control measures and the other looking at point sources. So, um, and we kind of joke, and it's kind of a, you know a science geek kind of joke that you know the point sources are is it's a pretty easy lift. And for those of our listeners who don't 
really understand that terminology. Basically, point source is coming from a pipe, essentially. And in the Mississippi River Basin, those are our water treatment plants. That's where we look for the point sources. Um, and non-point source is everything else. That's where Sarah 46 comes in. And so my colleague, Beth Baker, is at Mississippi State. So she's on the opposite end of the river as Mike is um, in Minnesota. So let's listen to Beth talk about um, the importance that she sees in being involved in Mississippi. No, being involved in the group is one of the most valuable things that I do because there are professionals across the basin that do the same kind of work I do and we can share our experiences and information related to both research and extension to move these issues forward so we're not um, struggling in our silos trying to find funding or struggling in our silos trying to move the research forward it's just a much more efficient way of taking strategies from across the basin to be innovative in our states and and more quickly knowing what works and what doesn't work or what we can modify to work in our states because there are a lot of differences and we talked about them today um, what works across the corn belt right isn't the same is some of the agriculture scenarios in the southern states. It's sometimes it's not it's not just corn in many of the cases. It's rice, cotton, soybeans, specialty crops, poultry, hogs, and cattle. So it's all you know, it's just a real diversity of scenarios when we're talking about water quality and agriculture landscapes. A lot of times we're not really talking about water quality because as an extension specialist, I serve the interests of the citizens of my state. And agriculture is our biggest industry and it's really important to the economy of the state. Um, and when I'm talking to farmers, it's definitely more from an agriculture sustainability standpoint because soil and water is foundational to that. And that's really what matters for their production and their success. And water quality outcomes are just a benefit of that. And so we talk more about soil health, irrigation efficiency, nutrient management, these words uh, that mean more to them for their production and profitability. Um, but in terms of the physical science, usually have the same outcomes as w when we're talking water quality. So cover crops are newer, or not as well adopted, I should say. Um, not as wide, there's not widespread adoption in the Mississippi Delta of cover crops. There's um, a lot of concerns about the soil type um, and more of the, the technical aspects of cover crops, which is planting, uh, not only in time, but also technique of planting, especially if you're not in a no-till system because then you don't have a no-till drill. Um, and then there's also obviously concern with uh, cover crop affecting the cash crop. And so when is it gonna be terminated and terminating it timely. Um, and so I wanted to get people out to have this field day before they started killing it, which will happen in February already. Um, and so of course we're here this week. I was in Louisiana last week. And so based on scheduling, I had to get that field day in because it's, you know, it's just one thing that we wanted to do during our cover crop season. We'll have another one during the cash crop season. So, um, organized it for this Friday in January and we wanted producers to come but I really wanted our extension agents in all the counties to come because we've got these um, demonstration farms for the project in six different counties because we varied them by soil type in that region so that farmers could see what's happening with the cover crops in these different soil types and um, 
And the more extension agents that came, the more that could participate and help facilitate our next field days. Because this is the beginning of the project, we're going to have six more. Um, and so the turnout wasn't as great as I wanted it to be, but it was still really good. It, because when you have a small group of folks, you have more discussion. And it was great discussion. And I had some of my um, extension administrators come, which was so great to have their support. Uh, two of our farmers came. And, and, you know, these farmers that are in our cover crop project have not been, have not been um, growing cover crops for 10 years, like early innovators have. This is, some, in most cases, their first year going, growing cover crops. So it's still great to have them there because they're learning alongside us. And, um, and we can learn so much from them in, in their concerns because they're practical concerns for other farmers as well and how these cover crops are gonna benefit their system or how um, the concerns they might have with pests with cover crop implementation, with planting, these real issues that are barriers to adoption. Beth talks about cover crops is something that is helping alleviate some of the problems with the hypoxia. What exactly is a cover crop? A, a cover crop is something that is seeded in, put into a, in a row crop situation. It's a crop that's used when the traditional cash crop has been harvested. So after corn, after soybeans, um, you know, after, and sometimes wheat actually can be essentially a cover crop. Um, and it's usually, you know, planted after the fall harvest and then stays on the ground throughout the winter months so that it is holding soil in place while we don't have a traditional cash crop actively growing on the field. So the spring rains that you talked about as being a really good predictor of the dead zone are happening and if you have a cover crop in place then hopefully you have less sediment and less nutrients running off. You would think. So the logic would say yes, absolutely. The problem that Beth had, and I've talked about this a lot, in, um, that we're seeing in some of our fields is that the cover crop needs to be terminated pretty early in the spring in order to get that cash crop planted and get it seeded in and be, you know, ready to, ready to roll. Because by May, you know, corn's already planted. Um, you know, soybeans, maybe, maybe not. But so that's one of the struggles that she's seeing is, especially in the, the lower basin, in, you know, the lower south, their, their growing season starts pretty early. Uh, even in this first year, it was, it was really great to see side by side cover crops planted and then a field that was fallow, no cover. It had just rained actually too, which was great because we could easily walk out on the cover crop field because it had that vegetative structure holding the field together. We got in the, we could, I mean, we could walk in the field that didn't have cover crops, but just like if you tried to drive farm equipment on it, it'd be much easier to drive it on the farm with cover crops. What Beth is talking about in terms of some of her research, she has some demonstration farms that she is working with, um, directly with farmers who are, have, you know, active production fields. And what she's doing is she has teamed with them to set up some monitoring stations at the edges of their fields so she can monitor water quality leaving the farm essentially. And Carmen, you're a, a water scientist. You know that it's an intricate thing. And I think sometimes for the general population, we just think, well, if you want to know what's going off the field, you just measure it. But 
there's a lot of variables involved. You know, um, does the land slope the right way so you get it off the field? Um, where exactly do you catch it? Uh, what kind of equipment can you set up? Um, what variables are you going to monitor? It's, it is a challenging, it is a really challenging yeah. part of it. And yeah. uh, I applaud her for, for doing that because it, having that edge of field knowledge really gets you to the source as best as you can with a non-point source pollutant of if I do practice A, what's going to happen? If I do practice B, what's going to happen? And that gives you a lot of information for better management. Right. And the exciting part is Beth and her colleagues are working with real farmers. It's sometimes in academia, we set up a model farm and it may not truly be representative of the day-to-day -day challenges that a farmer faces. And I've met one of her farmers and, um, and he's great and super down to earth and um, is really open to trying to monitor and understand what's happening on their farm so that they can make improvements. Um, I think in general, farmers do want to do the right thing, um, and farmers are great stewards of the land, um, but they also have to have the economics make sense. And that's where I think our colleagues with the Sarah 46 group and even working with the, the federal agencies with the, the hypoxia task force, I think we try to bring the reality in and say, here are what our farmers are facing, their challenges, and we have to figure out a way to make it economically feasible for those land users to do practices that help reduce nutrients in the Gulf. Sometimes it's hard to fathom how far we've come in like the last three years in terms of, especially with the Sarah 46 group, with the way we can share information, innovate even our extension, because that's obviously in a constant transition as technology changes and our farmer demographics change, you know, because we're doing a podcast right now, and I still have people that want me to send them a hard copy of things. I, I think the issue of relevance to individual producers and, and the public throughout the Mississippi River Basin is a really good question and one we, we really need to think about because, you know, is this, uh, is this something that's going to have a direct impact on me or is this an indirect? And, and I would really urge people to think about, you know, that the legacy we give our children and our children's children is the land and this place on earth. And that's what we have to pass on. And I think it's really important that, you know, water quality isn't only in rivers in the Mississippi River or in the Gulf of Mexico. Water quality starts on every piece of soil throughout the country. And I think it's important to Kentucky folks as well as to Iowa folks as well as you know, Wisconsin folks that we have a, a, a stewardship to our land and to our natural resources because that's what we're going to pass on to our next generation. And that, again, that could be you know, just a yard in the city or a small acreage in the suburbs or a farm out in the country. And we do need every, every piece of soil is impacted by the environment, by what we're putting on the soil directly or indirectly. And I think it's really important that we look at you know, uh, you know, the quality factors of the soil and it starts with the soil health and I'm going to soil quality which impact water quality which are ultimately going to impact Gulf of Mexico, et cetera. But it starts 
with every individual person. And I think that's why we really need to be aware of you know, these environmental issues. You know, as I listened and, you know, to you know, the younger generation today, I hear over and over again a real commitment and passion to environmental sustainability. They have this real drive towards you know, saving the planet, cleaning the environment, I think sometimes we don't always provide everybody with enough information to know that that starts in your backyard. Well, Carmen, thanks for joining me again. I was really excited to talk about a group that I've been um, just really, really pumped up to work with and kind of look at a bigger picture. Um, it's, it's sometimes easy to get pretty focused on our local issues, and I hope our listeners remember that we have a broader impact in the United States. I love the fact that Kentucky is working in such a big partnership with other institutions all across the Midwest on a problem um, that's a big problem, but it's got a lot of, uh, I think, wonderful minds tackling it. And I love the fact that you're searching for very practical solutions that are going to benefit not just the environment, but also benefit our agricultural producers. Yeah. Well, and to our listeners, thanks for joining us for another episode of KYH2O. You can check out our website for more information about this podcast and listen to our other episodes. You've been listening to Carmen Agaritas and Amanda Gumbert. Learn more about water at uky.edu forward slash BAE forward slash KYH2O. Subscribe to hear all episodes of KYH2O.